Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. So you're basically our birthday tech correspondent now. Oh. Well, no, wait, it's the other way. Tech birthday. Yes, tech birthday. <laughs> All of the tech for your best birthday party. That's me. Alex Hearn is not actually The Guardian's tech birthday correspondent. He's the UK tech editor. But he did join me in the studio to chat about a pretty pivotal anniversary in the tech world. 30 years ago, in March 1989, Tim Berners-Lee sent off the proposal for what would become the World Wide Web. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week, the inventor of the web reflects on what he could have done differently all those years ago, and what we should all be doing now to make the web a safer and better place to be. And later on, Elle Hunt joins me and Alex as we relive some of our earliest memories of using the web. My username was misspelled. <laughs> what was number it? Number one. Uh, it was attempting to be a behemoth, which was a... Oh, that's a difficult <laughs> word for an eight-year-old yep, to spell. A, a, Classic monster, a, a monster type in Final Fantasy that it was named after, and uh, it ended up being Baymoth. <laughs> um, so that, that was great. This is Chips With Everything. Had you ever met or talked to Sir Tim Berners-Lee before? Yes, I met him uh, a couple of years ago. We we spoke in the uh, in the South Bank. Actually, maybe it was even last year because I think we talked about Cambridge Analytica right. a fair amount. You know, he's he's always had uh, a little bit of uh, an irritation at the way his big, open, lovely platform for democratizing access to information has been a bit gobbled up by a few large companies. And that was what we spoke about last time. And and that was what we spoke about when I talked to him again. Uh, this month. What is he up to these days? So a lot of things, you know, he is, he's one of those people who has uh, his finger in many pies, although he's not that classic uh, benevolent dictator that you often get in, in large open source tech projects. He nonetheless has a, a large sort of ceremonial and leadership role in the continued development of the web. Um, but he also is is running several attempts to try and return to that that spirit of of openness and accessibility the the biggest of which is is a project he's got called solid it is an attempt to come up with a way of having a sort of open and useful approach to data gathering on the web which is controlled by the individuals rather than controlled by companies like facebook and google there's obvious benefits i think to that and it's easy to see what his motivation is Mm. which is kind of clawing back some power to a more democratically accountable way of using it 30 years ago, however, Sir Tim was just Tim. 
a man who wanted to fix a niggling problem facing many in the scientific world. So 30 years ago, he was a computer scientist at CERN, the physics laboratory on the French-Swiss border. The web was born out of his work there, out of seeing that physics, and particularly high-energy particle physics, most of your work is spent in huge collaborative groups trying to analyse it, trying to work out what is interesting, what's important in this data. And back in the pre-web days, that was kind of hard, actually. It was quite hard to have a large collaborative process that involved lots of documents, lots of people, each working on their own things, but each needing to dip into what everyone else was doing. Yeah, so what was his solution then, the original solution for tracking these projects? You know, like all of these things, it was evolutionary rather than revolutionary, actually. It was building on an idea that had been bubbling around computer science circles for a few years before of of hypermedia, hypertext, this idea that you could have text that linked to other text. It it sounds weird to say that because we're so used to to linking being a verb that we used in this context. But back then it was very much capital L. It was like a link in a piece of text that you could click or or type a number into and it would take you to another piece of text. And this was not a thing that happened, right? (laughs) This this wasn't a thing that existed. It, It was taking some of these ideas melding them with a really important thing to the web that earlier hypertext projects hadn't had, which was a decentralized aspect to it. The links could go to other servers. He had a whole protocol, what we call the URL, for letting one document on one server link to any other document on on any other server, creating an interconnected web of documents that link to each other. These were all fairly novel concepts back then and it's quite hard to get across the weightiness of each of these nouns a web with links of hypertext pages but that that's what it was that was what the proposal was each of these nouns was new and important right so it was novel but isn't it true that it wasn't seen as particularly groundbreaking even at the time um the reaction from his boss was to scroll across the top of the memo vague but promising (laughs) and then ignore it sounds like my school reports (laughs) um so yeah, so actually, although we although we celebrate March 89 as the 30th anniversary of the web, it's perhaps more accurate to say it's the 30th anniversary of Tim Berners-Lee's first proposal for the web. In May 1990, Tim Berners-Lee added, comma, May 1990 onto the date at the top of the thing, recirculated it and just started building it. So kind of the web is closer to 29 years old, really, because you just have this 14-month gap when he was kind of like, is anyone gonna gonna let me do it? Shall I shall I just do it? Okay, I'll 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 just do it. I'll just send out the document again and, and do it. The difference between us being older than the web or younger than the web. Ooh, quite, yeah. Gosh, how strange. Despite celebrating the existence of the web, I don't think any of us can ignore the fact that an awful lot of problems have grown in this metaphorical petri dish. For one thing, we now have the dark web a part of the web that isn't indexed by search engines, meaning people can use it to keep their activities hidden. Not what Berners-Lee had in mind back in 1989. Even so, Alex told me that Sir Tim doesn't necessarily have any deep regrets. I mean, it's fun. He is still at heart a, a computer scientist, a tinkerer. When I asked him what he would go back and change if he could, his first answer was sort of the way URLs are, are assigned. He, he was 
annoyed at the fact that people are spending $50,000 on a domain name because that's stupid artificial scarcity and terrible allocation of values. And it would be quite easy even back then to have come up with a better way of doing it. But as he said, the whole thing back then was done on this benevolent model. You went and you asked John Postel, one of the fathers of the internet, you went and asked him for a domain name and he gave you a domain name and that was it. (laughs) And in an internet with a few thousand people, that's all you really needed. Now that doesn't work. It's a huge business and, and that frustrated him. Such a computer scientist right, answer. Exactly. It is it is both an entirely reasonable answer, but also a, a very technical change he would make. It was a bit fun to have him go for these very specific technical changes after what had been a very wide ranging conversation that I'd had with him about the uh, the potential harms on the internet and what we need to do to ensure uh, another thirty years of the web, basically. Yeah, speaking of which, we covered Berners-Lee's Magna Carta for the web back in November, which Mm -hmm. is this call for governments, companies and individuals to sign up to protect people's rights and generally improve the accessibility and safety of the internet. So I presume he took this anniversary, this noteworthy anniversary, as a chance to make that call again. Exactly. And, you know, he, he made some very strong points about the fact that we have to be careful to distinguish various types of harm on the net. Some are just harms like that which comes from criminals and crime. Then there are, at the other end, things that he described as uncomfortable outcomes of benevolent aims. So that he was talking about stuff like pylons on social media, where you have people who want to tell someone who has done something bad that they've done something bad. But when there's 50,000 of those people doing it, you end up with a social punishment that is wildly out of proportion. Like Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Exactly. Wildly out of proportion to the actual wrongness done. The thing I think he found most exercising was was this middle category of of places on the net where it's not crime, but it's not unknowable sort of mysteries of what happens when social networks scale. It's, It's real problems that are kind of obviously going to come out of bad incentives. And so the one that he talked most about was the problems that you get with ad-funded business models, where the incentives for for everything on the internet kind of get warped by the pursuit of this goal to maximize number of views if you're paid per uh, view, number of clicks if you're paid per click, uh, watch time if you're paid per, you know, per watch time or if you're making a video where you get an advert shown every 15 minutes, all of these various things which are not actually the incentives that lead to the creation of a healthy society. They are kind of orthogonal to whether or not society is healthy. So one of the last quotes from Berners-Lee in your piece is, the web is for everyone and collectively we hold the power to change it. It won't be easy, but if we dream a little and work a lot, we can get the web we want. Do you think that's actually possible? I think it is because if web users, you know, web users is a way of saying 50% of the population of the earth, if they get together, they can change the web, right? It's a coordination problem. But it's true, we do hold the power to change this. Even in the grand scheme of things, minor coalitions of people have done quite large changes. We talked about Facebook a couple of months ago, their user numbers have dipped minutely. But that's been enough to catalyze a, a huge swath of changes. Mark Zuckerberg 
spending 3,000 words on an open letter the other week writing about how he wanted to move to a privacy-focused social network. That's, that's a tiny example of consumer activism having huge changes. One of the nice things about the web is small choices are quite easy to make. It's not like you have to drive an extra half an hour to a different town centre that contains a Sainsbury's rather than a Tesco to boycott Tesco. You, you type a different URL into a field. You can make these changes really easily and they can have large effects on everything. After the break, The Guardian's Elle Hunt will join us to chat about an article that she and Alex are working on, which looks at some of the strangest and funniest memories that readers and some of our colleagues have of the early days of the World Wide Web. You'd find these sort of communities and sort of invest in them with mostly strangers. It was so interest-based and it really felt like a kind of way of exploring your own identity and a platform of discovery that it isn't now. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Voice Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch-up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say... Hey Google, speak to the Guardian briefing. Welcome back to Tips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week we're celebrating 30 years since Sir Tim Berners-Lee first proposed his plans to build what became the World Wide Web. Elle, thanks for popping in to join us. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we chat about this. All of this talk of the history of the World Wide Web got Alex Hearn and Elle Hunt thinking about what we used the web for back when we were younger, and how it is, or isn't, vastly different depending on who you are. So they're compiling memories from people in online communities who wanted to share their stories. A lot of, time on the internet and forums. of course, the pair couldn't escape recounting their own earliest memories. So I spent a lot of time on the internet and forums, like ultimateguitar.com forums, um, and also this game called Hitman, which doesn't seem to exist anymore, and I can't find any trace of it. It was a text-based platform 
where you basically would press a button and then either your your hit would be effective or not, like successful or not. <laughs> I don't really remember it very well, but it was a huge part of my high school years and only like maybe two or three people from my school played it. But it was quite big overseas. And I spent a lot of time in these forums. And there was a couple there, I remember, who both played Hitman and were expecting a child. And they um, put the name of their first child to the community uh, for not even a vote. It was they got suggestions from the fellow Hitman players and then put those suggestions to the vote. Wow. And I, again, my memory on this is so hazy, but the facts, I promise, are true. I suggested some like probably terribly pretentious name. They liked it. And then I obviously campaigned in the forums <laughs> to have this child uh, uh, blighted with this this undeniably very pretentious name. Were for the you rest successful? Of her life. Yeah, absolutely. I named this kid. It's not my kid. How old is this person walking around with a name that you gave them? So I can't remember when it was exactly. I would say it must have been... 2005, 2006. So yeah, like coming into being a, a fully teenager. formed human being. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if they know. Well, this is the thing. I really hope this piece flushes out the parents. <laughs> I would just love that. Elle's relatively benign story of being a child who named a baby is not the first example in this piece of kids interacting with adults in chat rooms. Imagine the horror for parents. I mean, I look back on it very fondly because I didn't have any bad experiences, but it was a different time then when you were all protected by um, your username kind of granting you some anonymity. And you were meeting these people and sometimes it would kind of come out in the in the flow of conversation on forums or message boards or whatever that they were 45 and in Iowa. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, I'm, I'm 15 from New Zealand. And they'd be like, oh. And then they'd do one thing or the other, which was continue talking to you or not. And yeah. it was just at that time, you'd find these sort of communities and sort of um, invest in them with mostly strangers. It was so in interest-based and it really felt like a kind of way of exploring your own identity and a platform of discovery that it isn't now. Yeah, I don't know if I missed the interest-based because I spent a lot of time on things like Neopets and Habbo ah. Hotel, which were early social networks, I guess. So the stories that we've put together of Neopets and Habbo Hotel, did they spark any recognition in you? In a horrible, horrible <laughs> way. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that there's not that many people, you know, in their late 20s, 30s, who were on the internet that young, right? Mm. It's... It's a teen thing for people our age. They, they, you know, I can still re very much remember getting the internet. I got it slightly earlier, so I have this bizarre memory, and it's as fragmented as Elle's teen memory, of being eight on the game FAQs forum, where <laughs> my username was misspelled. What was number it? Number one. Uh, it was attempting to be uh, Behemoth, which was a... Oh, that's a difficult <laughs> word for an eight-year-old yep, to spell. A, a, monst a, a monster type in Final Fantasy that it was named after, and uh, it ended up being Behemoth. <laughs> um, so that, that was great. But then trying to participate in one of the roleplay threads in the Final Fantasy VII game FAQs subthorum. Yeah. And not only didn't really understand the whole idea of sort of in character posting didn't understand typing english mm. and there was a brief horrifying period when i had remembered this as an adult and the forums were still up <gasps> and just and and my very misspelled username made it quite easy to find my accounts and going back and just mm. watching this quite clear 
child, young mm. child, oh, no. trying to have a conversation. Yeah, it's like the um, story that Alan Evans shared with our, in our roundup, where he was um, describes himself as a rural nerdy boy in Essex, just kind of um, ex- poking around the chat rooms that were promoted to him by AOL, and ending <laughs> up in one which was called Oi Pinoy, which was very welcoming. Everybody was very nice to me. This is Alan Evans himself, the commissioning editor for Science, Environment and Global Health at The Guardian. It was also full of interesting new slang terms. Sort of the early days of internet slang, some of the things were very easy to work out. Abbreviations like BTW or BRB, I managed to work out those from the context, but some of them were quite hard. So I asked one of the fellow chat room members, what do these ones mean? And they just gave me a short response um, and they said it was... Tagalog. I thought this was quite an amazing new word and this this futuristic sounding thing felt quite appropriate for these new digital languages that were being built. I sort of gradually tried to learn the meanings and uh, eventually started trying to use them myself. This unfortunately clearly tipped off some of the other members of the chat room that perhaps I wasn't using them properly and I received a message a private message from one of the other chat room members telling me that I'd got it all wrong and that Pinoy was a slang word for Filipino and that Tagalog is a language in the Philippines that they spoke. Even now saying this, I feel the sort of the flush of humiliation. And uh, so I changed my handle and never went back in. Now, one story I have to hear is Lee Alexander. So she's the former host of this podcast and obviously a friend of mine and Alex's. And she always has really great insight about the web and tech and things. So what was her story about the early days of the web? What does she remember? Lee spent, I think, as we were discussing, a lot of time uh, really reveling in the ability to switch personas, to present yourself as a more mature, refined, perfected version of yourself. I'll let Lee explain from here. I joined a Usenet group for poetry lovers in 1994. Because I was 14 years old and nobody in my small town understood me at all, I chose the handle Delilah and set about posting my groundbreaking original works. I tackled fresh original topics like the recent death of Kurt Cobain, mostly as a ruse to convince everyone online that I was grown up. I even corresponded with a man, a real man who was like 30. We flirted over Eudora Mail as I complained obliquely about the social categories I'd been shunted into at school. And I was proud of myself for being so unsuperficial as to begin a textual romance with someone who was old and who probably had gray hair. Once we argued and in a fit of pique, I revealed my real age. I thought it would be, you know, a minor stumbling block in our great love story, but to this old man's credit, for him it was cause to apologize immediately and cease contact, leaving me deeply wounded. Lee's tale of pursuing romance as a teen who wanted to seem more grown up is a lesson rather than a love story. But The Guardian's Poppy Noor has something sweeter. I love Poppy's story. It was um, I wasn't a Habbo Hotel fan myself um, but it was essentially as I can understand it you chose an avatar to kind of communicate through in a sort of discussion board 
so you know I made mine like as attractive or cute as it could be and went out on my search for a boy and I found one (laughs) so his name was Dave um, and I think I was yeah about 13 or 14 at the time and we kind of you know spoke online for a few years and on the phone and miraculously one day we met and neither of us was a pervert or a catfish or um, you know anything dodgy like that and it was just it was kind of amazing really I mean I guess now stories of online dating are sort of you know it's all tinder and you know unsolicited photos that people don't want and it just can be quite a horrible place it feels a bit like a meat market and I think that something you know back in those days about um, online dating was genuinely pure I mean we just kind of bonded over like rock music and you know how we didn't fit in we weren't mainstream enough and we kind of genuinely built a friendship based on our personalities and like our chats that was great until I went to a mixed sick form when I was 16 and learned to socialize without the internet and cheated on my Habbo hotel boyfriend who then dumped me we're still friends we still chat um we often send each other kind of emails back and forth that we found from when we were like 14 or 15 being like oh my god do you remember how cringy we were and you know we're still we're still friends and it's it's good and I think it just yeah it shaped me in a really in a really lovely and quite profound way this is something I was curious about actually what do you think people who are using young people using the internet today kids and teens in 30 years time if we had this conversation with them what would Mm. their memories be it, it is right. It's it's fascinating. Sort of a I, a, I love a, a panel of twenty year olds discussing what the teens do on the internet. We, we have, <laughs> well, let's be honest. We're like pushing thirty, right? Like, <laughs> twenty somethings. Twenty uh, late twenties. Twenty a lot of somethings. But but I do think that what what we've seen Genetics. there is always nostalgia for for the internet that is just past. You know, right now the number of people who look mm. back nostalgically on Vine, uh, the Vine. number of people who remember twitter when it was good <laughs> this is absolutely I refuse to believe it <laughs> it's absolutely going to continue like and i and i hope it does it'll be really depressing if the internet calcifies to such an extent that you know a 15 year old when they're 45 can find the same communities and do the same stuff i but hope it, it remains dynamic it has become more part of the furniture in a way where it wasn't because i remember even just like broadband having to come back from home from school you know kick anyone who was on the phone off and you know hang on to my place online for dear life while my dad tried to be like someone might be trying to ring us and they were obviously never trying to (laughs) ring us but like there was a a, you went there and you came out and you lived your real life just remembering a time when yeah you came home from school and you spent an hour on the internet and then you went and did your better right thank you so much for coming in this was an awesome chat about something that made me feel very uncomfortable so thank you both for being here that's what we're here for (laughs) What are your earliest memories of the web? If you've got a particularly interesting tale, Alex and Elle might even include it in their article, which will be out later this week. So send us an email at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. There'll be a link to Alex's interview with Sir Tim Berners-Lee on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and... I'm going to go distract myself from memories of the real early web by playing some Hypnospace Outlaw, a video game set in an alternate reality internet in the year 1999. This is the part where I'd normally say talk to you next week, 
But if you keep your eyes on your podcast feeds, you'll notice that this Wednesday, we've got a special bonus episode. Make sure to check it out. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com code SUPER24.